So I'd like to talk tonight in a way, more or less as usual, that's a reminder to you of something that you already know. Not so much new information, but rather a reminder for your own heart and your own reflection to consider what is it that you do know. And in particular, how we navigate through hard times and what it would be like to be a bodhisattva in hard times. Bodhisattva is a uh, Buddhist term. A compound word, bodhi, means enlightened or awakened, and sattva means being. It's a being who's committed to the awakening or the alleviation of suffering um, for all. Somebody who's committed to say my life or my energy and so forth is to relieve suffering and bring well-being to as many beings as possible. Some little task like that, whatever. The Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning with this beautiful prayer from Shantideva where he says, may I be a a raft, a bridge, a boat to help those cross the stream of the flood. May I be a lamp for those lost in the darkness. May I be medicine for those who are sick. May I be a resting place for those who are weary. And may I do so as long as earth and sky and stars and galaxies exist so that I can contribute to the awakening of all for as long as where all beings exist. Some little bow like that, you know. Fortunately, he has lots of lifetimes to work on it. But you do too. You'll see. <laughs> Big surprise here. So Aldous Huxley said that an idolatrous religion, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. The religion of progress, you know, of endless progress in some way, is a substitution for the mystery that we exist at all and that the stars exist and that life takes all these forms. Endless progress. Remember computers were going to mean you'd had lots of free time? How has that worked out for you, you know? An idolatrous religion in which time is substituted for eternity. And we're in the cycle in California. The the hills are still green and the plum trees and the quince pop their blossoms. And as Pablo Neruda wrote... You can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There is a regeneration, which Paul is going to be talking about. There's something about life itself that wants to renew itself and that will have its way no matter what. And we get to pause for a moment and look at that plum tree or those quince flowers or, you know, hear the bird song. They're more active now. They're singing because they're happy. You know, so this is a good evening to come to Spirit Rock as well, because there's a lot going on out there, 
And it's a good time to pause and feel as you quiet down that sense of loving awareness that is who you really are and a sense of vastness or perspective, timelessness, that famous Ojibwa saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky to have that perspective. And yes, we're in volatile times. There's the pandemic. Coronavirus is coming to visit your town. It will, soon, probably. You know? And then there's politics, in case you haven't noticed. Right? And all of that going on. And climate change. And refugees, partly all connected, as a matter of fact. All those climate refugees and more. Um, and continuing warfare and continuing divisiveness and continuing racism. So it's a really uncertain time. How do we navigate as human beings what's really our way in uncertain times? The vast perspective. The image I like was from Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, where he wrote, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, and as I say this now, I think of the refugee boats in the Mediterranean trying to get to Europe, and I think of the going to, you know, trying to get to Lesbos in Greece, or trying to get to um, Sicily in Italy, or across past Gibraltar, there's refugees in boats everywhere. When the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats packed, met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. So that's the image in his both profound and poetic voice to say rough seas, This is your time. This is your time to be that person on the boat. I think about my dear friend and someone I admire a lot named um, A.T. Ariratana, who is the Gandhi of Sri Lanka. He's now in his 80s. He's been nominated for the Nobel Prize many times. He's gotten other great awards for being the best community organizer in all of Asia. You probably know him too, Paul. Um, And I think about being with him um, in Singapore. There was a big conference a couple of years ago that I was there with him. And the conference, it was a Wisdom 2.0 conference. It was a lovely conference. And it was full of tech titans and, you know, CEOs and powerful leaders and brilliant people. And, and, And then Ari got up. And he's a little bit, not exactly soft-spoken, kind of his voice. But he stood there and he said, there's another way that we in human beings have. There's the way of greed, the way of hatred, the fear and ignorance, and that's rampant. But I want you to remember that there is another way. 
And he spoke as you find in one of the Buddhist texts, others will be harsh, I will respond with compassion. Others will be greedy, I will be generous. Others will speak falsehoods, I will speak the truth. Others may be arrogant, I will practice humility. Others will lack understanding, I will develop wisdom. And he said it in such a kind way. He just looked at people and said, this is who you can be. And it was so different than all the other leaders who were there because it was like he was speaking from his heart to the heart of the others who were present. Now, in Sri Lanka, there had been for some decades a quite terrible civil war and Ari, who was a community organizer and a peacemaker, took into his home at times as a sanctuary leaders from the Muslim community, even though he was a Buddhist leader, or from the Tamil Hindu community where the war and conflict. And I remember hearing through friends that the Sri Lankan military police came to raid his house at one point. They knew he had some leaders from the Tamil Tigers and from the Muslim community, and they wanted to get at them. And Ari was gone, and so was his wife. And the only person that was left home, were the only people were his kids. So his eldest daughter opened the door She didn't unlock the grill, but she opened the door and they said, we know you have these people, we want them. And his daughter looked back and said, if my father were here, he would say you have to kill him first. But he's not here. And if my mother were here, she would say you have to kill her first. But she's not here. So I'm sorry to say you will have to kill me for I will not unlock this door. Quite a family. (laughs) He created Sarvodia, um, which is uh, an organization that organized the villages of Sri Lanka. And he did it, he was a high school teacher in the fanciest prep school in Colombo and he had the students, his students were the children of the generals and the ministers and things. And he took them out to the lowest caste, poorest villages. And you'd think he took them out to help them. But he didn't. He took them out there and he asked the villagers to teach these kids. The kids thought they were going to go and do something for the villagers. But instead the villagers taught them how to use machetes and how to open coconuts and cut bamboo and thatch things and create things and then the villagers who were very poor put on a big banquet for the kids he flipped it because he wanted the kids to understand that everybody has something beautiful to give to this world and he began Sarvodia and as an organization they dug wells and built schools and built roads and villages coming out of that until it eventually spread to more than half the communities in the entire country. And he said, we're not 
digging wells and building roads and building schools in order for education or water. He said, we're doing that so that people can love each other. That's really our purpose. His purpose was to empower people so that they would be empowered to live in a different way and respect one another. Toward the end of the Civil War, the Norwegians tried to broker a peace. And there was a peace for a certain time. And to support the peace treaty, Ari called all the followers of Sarvodia to a grand meeting at, in honor of Radhapura at the most famous and oldest temple in Sri Lanka. 650,000 people came in a country that only has 18 million people. Huge number. And he got up and he said, we have an opportunity for peace. He said, and I'd like to talk to you about peace. He said, in the Buddhist teachings, it's understood that those who are not yet wise look at the circumstances that they see now but those who are wise look at the causes and conditions that create the circumstance rather than reacting to them. And if we step back and look with this vaster perspective, we can see that it took 500 years to get into this civil war. 500 years of conflict between the Hindus and the Muslims and the Buddhists. 400 years of colonial oppression from the British particularly, Um, 150 years of economic disparity between the rich wet parts and the poor dry parts of the island. He described more of the conditions. He said, so it will take us 500 years to undo this. And I offer you the Sarvodia 500-year peace plan 10 years of ceasefire, 20 years of rebuilding roads and schools, 50 years of learning each other's languages and traditions, a 100-year economic plan to include everyone. And after 100 years, we'll have a council and see how we're doing, and then we'll do it four more times. When I heard this, I could have wept. I actually got the chance to tell this story to the Dalai Lama, which was a really cool thing. to do because he has his own suffering to figure out how to hold in this world because it wasn't the voice of somebody who's worried about the next election it wasn't a voice of somebody who's doing focus groups it was the voice of an elder who was willing to say here's what's true and here's the direction that we need to turn our consciousness and our heart That's why in that conference in Sri Lanka, there were all the, you know, CEOs of giant companies and ministers and so, and then there was Ari. He just spoke from a different place. The other night, I did some teaching online, naturally, for uh, a large group of people in China who were quarantined and who are interested in meditation. 
Um, and they asked if I got, I got asked. They read books of mine that are translated in Chinese and so forth. Um, and so I tried to give them teachings that I thought might be helpful. First, I talked about how the Buddha's teachings were um, to tend those who are sick. That's part of the teachings, as if they were the Buddha himself. To tend ourselves, to tend one another, to bring the care for yourself and another together. Then I talked to them about uh, using the circumstances that they had and saying, all right, it's enforced on you. What are you going to do with a month or two of this kind of time where you can't go out? I said, I just need to tell you, I was trying to make a little joke out of it, that we have a hundred people at Spirit Rock and from hundred, two hundred people in our center in Massachusetts who've just paid two to three thousand dollars to be here for two months or three months, unallowed, not allowed to talk to anybody. You get it for free. <laughs> what do you want to do with that? You could sit there and bemoan your fate. Or you could take this time and turn it into something that's really of value to your heart. And we talked about the kinds of practices of compassion and loving kindness. I said, you have this Chinese treasure house that comes for thousands of years of contemplative life. And you know, the things that you value, the Tao Te Ching that Lao Tzu left and the Chuang Tzu's writing and the writings of Confucius, they didn't come out of nowhere. They came because of these people, the nuns and the monks. They sat quietly and they listened deeply to the turning of the seasons, to the joys and sorrows that you're now confronted with. And they found a timeless wisdom. And now it's your turn. Now it's your time to do this. And that inside yourself, well, as the poet Kabir says, inside this clay jug are canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside. And the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings of the spheres, all this is inside. Volumes of poetry are in you, yet unwritten. The music, creativity, longing, vision. You don't have to go out. You can also go in. So we talked about all of that. And then we talked about the bodhisattva. And in particular, about alleviating suffering. And the vow of the bodhisattva is if there's a place of suffering, sign me up. I'll go there. And you have all these stories about bodhisattvas saying, oh, there's the epidemic or there's the, you know, war, something. I will go there and do what I can to alleviate suffering. Which is to say that the difficulties become the perfect place to grow the great heart of compassion. Where else could you do it better than in times of difficulty? In the community, in the nation, in the globe, the climate, all of these things. And this is your lineage as well as those in China. It's the lineage of not just survivors, but of humanity that's triumphed in different ways and made beautiful communities over thousands of years. We know how to do this. 
We know how to practice. Practices of love and witnessing and freedom, becoming loving awareness. So what does this have to do with climate change? Here's Paul, my friend, sitting here. We'll get to it. They're completely connected. We're all in it together. Where it's, whether it's the virus or the climate, it's us, baby. We're all in it together. And the refugees and the illness and the loss of species and the loss of home. There's a general feeling in many places of anxiety. It might feel like it's too big, climate change, despairing, hopeless, politics stokes fear. You know it does. That's how politics works. Let's make you afraid. They want you to be afraid, actually. Don't buy it. Christina Figuera, who you probably know, was here when we were talking about climate change last year. She is the UN Special Envoy for Climate Change, who helped to organize both the Rio Climate Summit and the Paris Climate Summit. And she talked about how she'd become despairing and despondent um, as she was trying to get Paris underway, 186 countries. There was so much conflict and difficulty that she became really depressed and felt like undermined, I can't do this. And someone said, you know, there's this little place in the south of France um, run by this uh, Vietnamese monk, uh, his name is Thich Nhat Hanh, Plum Village, I think it's called. Maybe you should go there, it might help you. So she described going to Plum Village because she didn't know what else to do. Profoundly depressed. And after some weeks in Plum Village, she said, my whole consciousness changed. She got quiet. She practiced as we did tonight. And she said, I realized that most of the climate accord problems were based on the model of victim and perpetrator. Who was doing it to whom? Who owed whom? Who was the bad guy? I'll leave it in the masculine. It belongs there. Who were the good, <laughs> good girls or whatever? Um, and then she realized we can't do this. This is really how, how we got stuck in this. And her whole consciousness changed. And he said, we're a family. It's not victim and perpetrator, it's us. And somehow that revelation changed her psyche and her heart. And she was able to go back to Paris and pull together 185 countries in this remarkable way. Now, Paul who wrote or pulled together, among other things, Drawdown, which I mentioned to you, in a crowdsourcing way, he got people all over the world to contribute to the the possibilities of not just stopping, but reversing climate change. And in the end, there's this amazing list of the hundred solutions ranked by the most effective, how many gigatons of carbon will it take out of the atmosphere, how likely is it to do, what are the political ramifications, what will it cost, and so forth. It's practical. And it's also incredibly empowering, like like Ari Ratana was empowering, of people to say it's in your hands. Because in the top ten, it's not just nuclear or wind, it's food waste in the top ten. And agricultural practices 
you know. Um, and it's um, the top technological one is refrigeration. All the chlorofluorocarbons in every little ice cream maker and air conditioner in Buenos Aires and Pakistan and so forth, when those gases get released, if we don't have a little thing which is easy to distribute that will transform those gases, they will undo all the wind or solar power you can build. So there's a tremendous amount of understanding in it, but the thing that's most moving to me is that in the top 10 or 15, if you take two of the, two of the things in the top 10 that belong together, they become the number one before nuclear or, or wind or solar, is the education and empowerment of women and girls. That that would do more to reverse climate change than anything else in the planet. Yes, it's partly family planning, but in Kenya, half of the economy is being done by women on smartphones, and they make entirely different decisions about what to plant and what to sell and what their family should do, how they relate in the community, all of it because they're getting educated. I just came back from Hawaii where I was part of the memorial for Ramdas. Very moving. I talked about Ramdas last month and so forth. The one thing I wanted to say, and this was actually part of the San Francisco uh, memorial as well, because um, he inspired so much and he was so amazingly loving by the end of his life. He just loved everyone. You could feel it. You come by and it was like the love machine. You just like everybody vibrated. And in the room without him, there was so much love because his picture was there. And Krishnadas, who's this wonderful kirtan singer and musician, many of you may know, said the line I liked about the best in the whole memorial. He said, I met Ramdas when I, Krishnadas, was 18 years old and He'd just come back from India. He was Baba Ramdas with his beard and his robes and beads and things teaching. And I heard him teach and I was so inspired. He was an amazingly inspiring orator and teacher. And so I started to get to know him and then I followed him to India. And then, you know, Katie paused for a bit and he said, and now, it's 40 years later, he said, I'm happy to say that Ramdas became the person we thought he was when we met him. (laughs) Which is a really amazing thing to say, you know. In India they say there are three things to keep at a certain distance. The, you know, fire, the government, and spiritual teachers, right? You don't don't want to get too close. But in any case, he became that we became who we thought he was. The thing is that you can become that too, and I can, and Paul can. That that's the beautiful thing. It's not just Ramdas. That the game is really to be empowered. And you can choose to act in this world. In fact, if you don't, it's because you've chosen not to act. You can choose to quiet your mind and tend your heart and become the vastness that you really are, the loving awareness and then you can get up and you can be empowered. The world needs you to add your voice and your heart and to make a difference, probably more than ever right now. And as you do it, 
you know, be courageous and strong, but because things are tough and they're going to get tougher with the epidemic and politics and all that, be extra polite, extra courteous, you know, respectful and patient. Because people are afraid and you don't have to be. You can trust. You see the spring come back and that's your ally. You can trust the world wants to regenerate. So with that word regenerate, my friend, Paul is working on the the follow-up to drawdown, which is regeneration. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to keep going, actually. (laughs) Uh, I do have a confession to make. And you can raise your hand if you share the same thing. I am a Jack Cornfield podcast junkie. (laughs) Anybody anybody else? All right. 78 kills it, crushes it. Try podcast number 78. That's okay. Meets the Lord of Death. I mean, it is a spellbinding, absolutely stand-up comedy Buddhism. You can't do any better. I mean, and thank you so much for that. So I feel like I've come through the looking glass. I've heard every one of the podcasts, sometimes more than once. So I'm sitting here and I have this sort of feeling like some night I'll turn on a podcast and say, oh my God, it's me. (laughs) You're so shaken up by that. (laughs) But I'm so grateful that you want to listen to me um, tonight. And thank you for inviting me. I'm very glad you're here. Yeah, thank you. Um, Gosh, how many people are anxious, concerned, you know, uneaseful, um, worried, fearful. There's other adjectives, but you know what they are about climate change or global warming. Raise your hand. <laughs> okay, that's good. How many aren't? Okay, so can we talk afterwards? I want to know what you know. <laughs> it's really cool. I'm so glad. <laughs> It's full. The worry bin's full. Okay. Here's the most important question. How many people think the climate is absolutely perfect? Ah. Yes. You all should have raised your hands. You really should have. It is absolutely perfect. It doesn't have any choice in this matter at all, by the way. (laughs) It is doing exactly what the climate has done for a billion years, which is respond and change. Get warmer, get colder, do ice ages, blow everything out, try it again, start over. The climate is perfect. I mean, it is the, talk about blessings. And when you hear the term climate change, which has become a standard phrase, or coupling of words, the climate 
is supposed to change every nanosecond, and that's what it does. And it does it so well. And if it didn't do that, we wouldn't have seasons, food, animals, critters, biodiversity, and beauty. The change is what causes that. And so for me, I was the, I'm the same person who raised their hand for the first question, and still am to this day, by the way. Um, every morning I have these RSS feeds and so forth that come in, and uh, I, I cannot read them at night. I don't sleep well, so I read them in the morning. Okay? I can have the whole day to try to integrate and incorporate them. Um, and there's some mornings I'm going, oh no, no, don't say that. Wait, wait, you know, we're losing our cloud covers. No, no, please, scientists, you know, this can't be true. So you, you see this incremental um, expansion of the predictions of what a interesting predicament we have created for ourselves. And um, But for me, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm an English major. Um, I have for two decades now, or more actually, been looking and parsing how we talk to each other about this, the language itself. And for me, it just didn't make sense. And it's interesting because prior to that, the word sustainability was being used everywhere around the environment and it became what's called a weasel word, which meant it means anything to whoever is using it, however they define it stipulatively, so it had no meaning. And so when people used to ask me what sustainability meant because of the influence of my teachers, I said it means alleviating suffering of all beings. That's what sustainability means. And that took care of that one. Then we could go on talking about how to do that. And um, But for me, the around climate, I felt like what is so beautiful about the way we talk about it is emblematic of the cause. In other words, the semantics or the wordings that we use commonly and the media uses actually tells us what the cause is. And those words are war metaphors and sports. Very male. Fight, climate change. Combat, climate change. Tap, tackle, climate change. The climate crusade. Is there anybody here of Arabic origin? Okay. I mean, you might as well say Holocaust when you say crusade. That's a horrific event in human history. And these are the words we're using. Well, what do they tell us? What they tell us is that we are othering a miracle. Climate is a miracle. And we're using language that makes, which the egoic mind does always, which is to make a separation between self and other, object, subject, right? So, that is the cause. That's where it came from. That's how we did it. We othered the natural world. We othered Native Americans. We othered other races, 
racism. We othered religions, Islamophobia. We othered women, apparently, for at least two and a half thousand years, maybe longer. I don't know. But we're, now we have Me Too. Which is such a humble phrase when you think about it. Just Me Too, right? But all of this is about seeing it as other and occasionally now when I'm in an audience I'll ask people to go like this you know and they don't want to do it I said no go ahead do it and and, and I said just close your eyes just dork out and do it and they do it and I ask them what do you feel and they go air and I said no that's the atmosphere the thing that you're going to tackle <laughs> And this idea that we don't influence it, I just did, I exhaled CO2. Boom, I exhaled. So when you understand it and see it that way, the inextricability and interdependence between all these things we name, we label them, but they're inseparable. So whether it's climate, weather, atmosphere, and this miracle we call life, it's the same thing. They're vastly dependent on each other. The biosphere creates climate, climate creates the biosphere, biosphere affects climate, biosphere affects the atmosphere. It's this beautiful dance that has been going on for billions of years. And so Drawdown, the book, when uh, for me was really a plea in 2001, to scientists and NGOs and academics. And what I was simply asking for was, can we just find out what to do? I don't know what to do. And there's no list of what to do and how much it costs and what impact it'll have. And this is when the third assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change came out and it was each one is more sobering than the prior one and everyone I spoke to said well, that's a great idea we don't do that why don't you do that I said I don't know how to do that that's why I'm asking you and um, there it went for years and years I stopped asking and then in 2013 Bill McKibben wrote a piece called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math um, and it did terrify people. It was a good piece. <laughs> He's a good writer. And people came to me and said, it's, it's game over. Like, I'm going to move to British Columbia, take the kids, whatever, and it's over. It's done. We tried. We worked hard. They were. The people who came to me were those people. And what I felt then was that it, when people surrendered, there was actually a surrender, game over, we give up. That there was, a, it's actually an opening. It's a beautiful. It's really an opening for consciousness and awareness because you know you don't know anymore. You know. And so, as Jack said, you know, I knew that I couldn't do it, even if I could. If you had a white male <laughs> saying, "I know what the answers are. Listen up." <laughs> And that would have all the credibility of a lentil, you know. And uh, 
And the only way to create something that had some substance and credibility was to reach out as a community, as a collaboration, so that all the voices are being heard and working together as opposed to, you know, um, what we often see now, and I understand their leadership, but I mean, I think that age of the white charismatic male vertebrate is over, and uh, it's, thank you, you've done enough damage, and so... We know that going forward, it's not to obviate or to diminish the role of the male so much as to diminish the role of othering, of the male as an identity unto itself. And so that is where the language, the science has come, the language has come, and so-called actions. And so what Drawdown did is put the word out all over the world to uh, ask for research fellows, Drawdown fellows, and almost half women, 21 countries, um, every major religion and some minor ones, uh, White House fellows, Aga Khan Award winners, just an extraordinary group of people came forth. And we worked together for three years and Drawdown is the result. But I was authored most of it, but I authored it from theses that had been done by these research fellows, five, 10,000 word theses on each solution. And uh, extraordinary work that they did. They're all half for PhDs, they're postdocs, double degrees, and so they're amazing people. But I was also the editor, which is what it says on the cover. And what I didn't say to anybody, and so maybe this was I should have, but I didn't, is that there, the book was a technique. It wasn't just a book. And the first thing is the cover had to have the problem and the solution, both. It can't be just uninhabitable earth or the end of ice. (laughs) Which is like, yeah, and... (laughs) Okay, so number one. Number two, it had to be a collaboration. In other words, so that it had some credibility. You know, three, um, no fear. No doom, no threat to motivate. It doesn't work, which is, so it was an easy choice. It doesn't work. We know that from every neuroscientist alive. And yet we still try to employ that as a way to get people excited about things and to do something. Also, no blame, no shame, no finger pointing, no demonization of anyone. The next thing, never say that you're right. Don't be right about anything. Be helpful, share, have citations, but it says right in induction, this is not right. We hope it's approximately right. You be the judge. Because as soon as you're right, you've made somebody wrong. So you divide. So next week's no divisions. Don't divide the world. And again, it's about verbs, about combating, tackling, fighting, uh, and all those verbs. You know, divide the world, divide up. You know, so we didn't do that. And then to try to make it beautiful, in other words, to make the imagery. You know, so that the number six solution of educating, empowering girls, you know, is the most beautiful Kenyan girl you've ever seen, you know, standing there with this grin on her face in front of a blackboard instead of just 
black and white words about educating girls, you know, factoid, factoid, factoid. We told stories. And facts don't change people's minds, only stories do. Only storytellers do. This guy here. That's why I'm a junkie. And it's like. And. Ramda said I tell too many stories, but that's it. <laughs> I you said, guys pot, pot in the kettle, we've got a little. <laughs> but I, I think that the. Um, and there is a couple more too, but the point being is that with Dwaran is like to try to enter into the stream, you know, the river, to enter that river of confusion, of anxiety, of concern, which is very justified, by the way, by the science. So it, this is not like, it, it makes sense if you're worried and concerned, of course, you know. It doesn't make sense to be attached to it, but that's another subject, right? But so to how to enter into that stream in a way that actually was spacious, to create spaciousness for people. And what's happened is that it is taught in every grade level in the United States from fourth grade, fifth grade, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, to MIT graduate school, the same book. The fourth graders cut it up into pictures and then actually dress up as solutions and try to have the friends guess what they're what the solution is and what it does. I mean, that's how they use the book. I have no idea what they do at MIT. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, and so they'll dress up as a, as a pea and a carrot, you know, peas and carrots. And then they'll say, you have to guess, oh, that's plant-rich diet. Yes, you won. Okay. And so that's what fourth graders do with the book. And I remember somebody asking me once in a talk, he was in the back of the room and the, it was being televised, uh, live streamed, but it stopped. It was an hour. And then there were still hands up and so the moderator called on this person and he was, I can't even do it to you, but I'll do it here, but he was pointing, jabbing his finger at me like this, you know, which... Um, is beautiful because it's universally a bad thing to do in every country in the world. (laughs) I understood it. (laughs) But he was saying in a very, I will imitate the voice, you know, what do you say to the NASCAR people? Huh? Like, huh? You're, You're talking to the choir here, you know? And he was very confrontive. And I said what I always say, when somebody asks a question, which is, what a good question. <laughs> Every question is a great question. Because if it's genuine, it's a good question. Right? And I thought about it, I said, I'd probably ask him if he favored Kyle Bush or Chase Elliott for the championship. He looked at me like, why? What do you mean? Why would you? Why would you say that? I said the implication of your question that it's my job to change somebody else's mind, and that's not my job. My job is to change my own, and that's hard enough. I tell you that. And so, in this movement, this climate movement, so-called, 
I just feel like there's a, 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 um, a quality that comes from practice and from sitting and meditation and sanghas um, that is remarkably more effective than the activity that is being engendered because it's a climate emergency. It's a climate crisis. And so therefore the amygdala responds and you think, well, I've got to do something quickly and it's got to have a big impact and, and then you start to feel all that anxiety and you know you're off base as soon as you feel it but you might continue to do it anyway because it's such a big emergency and um, the quotes you mentioned there's a staff uh, I know he does notes I brought notes I never have notes but anyway um, but there was a beautiful quote um, from um, William Stafford which I love it's it's a little you'll get it at the end (laughs) It says, the things you do not have to say make you rich. Saying things you do not need to say weakens your talk. Hearing things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. And the things you know before you hear them, those are you. Those are why you're in the world which is such straight-up Theravada, <laughs> like the one who knows, you know. And from my... The Regeneration Next Book is really about trying to draw out what we do know. We know what to do when we know how to do it. What we have not been called to is to come together in ways that are honoring, respectful, listening-based. And, and it, 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 the emphasis is on not the future. And you hear in the last democratic debate, every single candidate talked about future existential threat. I mean, it's burnished on the cortex now. You know, and it's not about future existential threat. That's just in your mind. It's good science, but it's not a place to dwell. And what regeneration says is if we're going to reverse this climate crisis, we have to pay attention to current human needs. And that if humanity isn't paying attention, which it's not really, it's because we're not paying attention to humanity. And that if the climate movement isn't directed towards the needs of the vulnerable and the impoverished and the disenfranchised and those who are suffering right now and will suffer more from changes in weather, rain, drought, food, war, migration, etc., then we're not serious about it. This is not a top-down solution. This isn't going to come from the top. I love that people get together every year in four- and five-star hotels from 186 countries to meet about it. That's great. And with all due respect to Christiana, who's an amazing woman, nothing is going to happen from that. You can count on it. It's been going on for 25 years, and the atmosphere hasn't noticed yet. (laughs) 
and the reason for that is that it has no agency. It's the confluence. Confluences have no agency. You do. You do. All agency comes from an individual initially. And it becomes a dyad and a group and a community and a gathering. And sometimes it becomes like a ratna, a movement. But if I have a few more minutes, do I? You do? Just a few more minutes. Keep going. Simultaneously to that, I wondered, this is 2001, I wondered, well, where do movements come from? How are they begun? How do they start? Um, And so I want to tell you how the Civil Rights Movement began because I was a part of it. But So I wanted to sort of follow the breadcrumb trail back as far as it could go to see where it originated. And where it originated literally is Ralph Waldo Emerson's father who was a pastor giving Ralph Waldo Emerson a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Which when Emerson wrote it uh, read it, wrote that it was, he put it on par with the Bible in terms of its spiritual importance. So Emerson then becomes a pastor and he um, marries this wonderful young woman. He's 23, she's 18, and within, I think, a year and a half, she dies. And he is just heart-stricken, in grief, sadness, and his friends say, go to Europe, get out of here, get out of Boston, go there. And he starts in the boot of Italy, and he goes up, and he's meeting Wadsworth, all these amazing people. But then he goes to Paris, and those who have been to Paris near Notre Dame know that just down the river is the botanical garden, but then it was called the Jardin des Plantes. And it was the Jusso family. And the Jusso's before Wallace and Darwin actually had a way of organizing botanicals and, and, and all the pieces and parts that were coming in from all over the world from explorers, so-called explorers. And they had a topology and organized it so that when you went in, you saw this little wing and a bigger wing and wings and colors and so forth. The same with plants. And Emerson went there and he was blown away. He, he, you should read his journal that night. It's like, for the first time, he is joyous and he has seen the web of life. And he realizes that all of life is interconnected, interdependent, mutually arose. I mean, he just cannot write enough. And he keeps going and on. And then when he comes back to the States, he writes the book Nature, which is an extraordinary book to this day, by the way. Extraordinary. And in which, as soon as it's published, one of the first people to buy it is Henry David Thoreau. And he graduates from Harvard and he goes to Emerson and said, you know, what should I do? What should I do? And Emerson says, keep a journal, <laughs> which he did for, uh, gosh, thousands of pages, like 6,000 pages. But then he builds this little cabin on Emerson's land called, on Walden Pond, right? 
And a friend of mine said, you know, I collect books that were owned by the Transcendentalists. And he said, let me send this one to you. It was over Thoreau's head on the shelf in his cabin at Walden Pond by R. Spence Hardy. It's called A Manual of Buddhism. (laughs) And it has his margin notes in it. It's like... And we don't know that, but I mean, North Boston, 1870s, was like Boulder. I mean, you could buy mala beads and Buddhas, and <laughs> you probably couldn't get Buddha bobbleheads like you can now, but I mean, you could get <laughs> everything at that time. There was this just amazing efflorescence of Buddhism in the Northeast. But the, it, it's pertinent because in, in the, I think, 19, excuse me, yeah, uh, 1846, was it? Anyway, he was walking to town. He was arrested. We know about that. He was arrested by the sheriff of Middlesex County for not paying his poll tax. Okay, He didn't pay his poll tax because the poll tax kept freed African Americans from voting, right? which is Republicans are still working on that to this day. right? And so he was arrested. His sister brought him some hot chocolate. He was let out the next day. But then he gave a talk at the Concord Lyceum and uh, with a long name and so forth and basically saying, when the government is unjust, the just person is in jail. And what he did is he took the shame and the ignominy of being in jail and flipped it. He flipped it. And to be something of a badge of courage and a badge of honor. And... And then four years after, that was transcribed, and four years after he died, four years after he died, there is this essay of his, the essay that he wrote, except it's called Uncivil Disobedience. He never said the word. He never wrote it. No one knows where it came from to this day. And almost, what is it? That was 1866. And then in 1906, this skinny little lawyer in Durban, South Africa, is meeting with a thousand Hindu and Muslims, and they have decided to basically oppose the Black Act, which is basically apartheid and registration, and they agree to get arrested. And Gandhi goes home that night and, and says, we agreed to, but I'm going to get disbarred. I just got my, I'm just able to practice now and I'll go home, my family and this and that. We've all agreed to get arrested. And somebody from the Durban Times, uh, we don't know when, gave Mohandas Gandhi the essay on civil disobedience. And they got arrested and he held it up as he went into jail in South Africa. And that is so important because Martin Luther King, when he was appointed the head of the Montgomery Boycott, he didn't really head it, Joanne Robinson headed it. Uh, That was because Rosa Parks wouldn't give up her seat. And why didn't she give up her seat? Not because she was lazy or tired that night, because she had been trained at the Highlander Institute in Tennessee, paid for by Clifford and Virginia Dewar, who are still trying to get poll taxes taken away, even then, in 1955, and she learned nonviolence because Miles Horton studied with Gandhi. And so when she didn't 
take, give up her seat. She was practicing non-violent resistance, satyagraha, which is what Gandhi created. And that's how King got hired and came to Montgomery. And within two months, they had blown up his front porch with his wife and children in it, and he went crazy, and he just so upset about it, and he tried to get a license to get a gun. The sheriff wouldn't get it to him, but he had guns in the house. He had uh, African-Americans who had rifles. He was armed. And Bayard Rustin came down. Bayard Rustin was the most beautiful. I had a chance to meet him, african just forget African-American, man you'll ever meet. He happened to be an African-American, spoke the king's English, was tall, could sing, act. He was just an extraordinary human being, and he was gay. Well, you never sent Bayard Rustin down to the South (laughs) unless it was really, really important because he was so vulnerable because of that. And he brought to Martin Luther King, he, he sat down like this. He sat down and he said, what's that? And he pulled out a gun. So what are you doing? He said, well, I'm defending my wife and children. And uh, he said, no, haven't you heard of Gandhi? He said, yeah, I've heard of him. He said, and so he got a, a Methodist preacher there um, and he came over and gave him the autobiography of Gandhi and the copy of Civil Disobedience. And that Sunday, you can read that sermon. And that completely changed Martin Luther King's career. And wait, why do I tell this story? Because it's not about King or Parks. It's not about Gandhi. It's not about Thoreau. It's not about Emerson. They would be a magnificent people no matter what happened. What I'm telling you about, who renamed the essay? We don't know. Who gave Gandhi the essay? We don't know. We know who Joanne Robinson is, but nobody knows her. She was the one who organized the Montgomery bus boycott. She was the one who brought in Martin Luther King. I can name more and more names. What I'm saying is the only we have so little control, but we do control a couple things. Our intention, our ability to let go, forgive, and to be generous. Those things we can control. And I, I feel like the way a movement starts is so mysterious that it's not knowable. You can't plan it, but you can embody it. And I feel like this, what we face in terms of global warming is, if you describe it and get into the science, it is almost scientific science fiction and its nightmarish qualities going forward. And we face 30 years, no matter what we do, we face 30, 40 years of severe changes on the planet. There's nothing we can do about it right now. It's locked in. It's baked. So to Jack's point, who are we going to be? Who are we? Right? And... um, I just feel, and you know Byron Katie comes here once a year, August, and she has this wonderful flip. It's a prepositional flip, right? And and the question is, is climate change happening to you, global warming happening to you or for you? It's a fair question, 
Because if it's two, you're the object, you're the victim, you're going to blame, you're going to finger point, you're going to say, you know, whatever. But you're going to live in that mind. And that mind is going to see itself as being separate for one and therefore um, impacted and hurt or harmed or potentially in another way. If it's for you, which it is, by the way, it's a blessing. Global warming is a total blessing. Why? Because it's feedback. It's beautiful feedback. And any system that ignores feedback perishes. So it is a gift. And if it's for you, then basically you can just take 100% responsibility, stop finger pointing, not blame anybody, and you are free to innovate, to imagine, to generate, to create whatever it is you can do in this world that makes a difference. And you do it not because of you're afraid, but you do it for the only way and the only reason that this is going to be um, upheld by humanity is you do it out of love. And, 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 and so the way, to, for me, if you, if you, if you doubt it, it's, it's like fall in love with what's outside. Fall in love with the critters, the creatures. Fall in love with everything you see right now. Springtime is the best of all in some ways. but And it, it's out of that love of the living world you know, that we achieve transcendence and a sense of, of, of what... Of, of, um, um, like the thing that Stafford said, you know, the thing you don't you don't need to hear is who you are, and what you don't need to hear out there is something that nobody will tell you, but that you are the miracle as well, and as is your heart, and as is everything we do together. And so, for me, regeneration is really about stopping degeneration. Come on, let's stop. We've done it. How's it, how is it working for us? <laughs> it's not working so well. And it's about turning around and do that. I could talk more about some other time. But that's the um, reason I'm a podcast junkie. Because I get fed. I need to be fed. I get all the science in the morning. And then I get all the dharma at night. And I I think it's a good mixture. Anyway, I just want to thank you all for who you are and what you do. So Paul told me a story, we just have a few more minutes, Mm. about the publication of Drawdown. Now he's working on regeneration and the the words of empowerment and the stories that he's telling tonight are really something so, um, so much of a reminder to us. But when this book was about to be published or when they were considering it, at Penguin Press, um, there were a lot of doubts, you said. You know, the accountant said, oh my God, it's got all these color pages in it, it's really expensive, and then apparently you said, it's on 100% recycled paper, you know, and it's 
not hardback, so New York Times won't review it, and there were a lot of other critiques of many, many kinds. And you can tell the rest of the story. Well, it was my editor I've had for 30 years, I'm kind of a dog uh, that way. I'm so loyal. He's this is the fifth publisher um, he's been with, and but he's he didn't really want to publish it, and he was getting a lot of negative stuff about the cost and promotion and wouldn't get reviewed and you have to print 15,000 copies at a time and and climate books don't sell and they're going to sit in the warehouse and be remaindered and be you know all that sort of stuff and when they when they publish a book at this is penguin random house anyway it's it's a circle it's by consensus everybody has something to say promotion production you know academics etc editorial and they kept going around for a year a year and not making a decision and everybody's being equivocal no one wanted to say yes or no but nobody was saying yes and they had a final meeting and we made the book ourselves we set type everything so it wasn't we didn't need anything from them except just to put on a press and they had one more meeting and the publisher of Penguin is a, a woman Catherine Court I didn't know the story until after the book was published um, but she listened to all the conversation and she's a really lovely woman very um, dignified and um, humble and she said may I ask one question and like She's the CEO, so yeah, you can ask the question. He said, tell me this, if we don't publish this book, why are we here at all? And it was it was a New York Times bestseller the first week, and it was so interesting because everybody was yeah, well, I was you know everybody in Penguin was like <laughs> success has many authors as you know. <laughs> anyway, and I asked Paul to tell that story because why are we here? Why are we here? Why are we here? And I'm grateful for the work and the vision and the inspiration and for the breadcrumbs, you know, because <laughs> you're adding your breadcrumbs to the to the common trail that we're on. Um, and at this time, it feels really important mm. that we practice. And practice centering yourself, quieting your mind, tending your heart, being that person on the boat, um, and then offering your gifts to the world. So let's just sit for a few seconds, quiet. May you carry your beauty out into the world. Thank you. And drive politely out there. There's a lot of people and it's dark. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.